Welcome to Season 2 of My Unknown Truth, a podcast sharing stories and experiences of adoption and foster care in Australia and around the world. My name is Nadia Levitt, and while exploring my own adoption journey, I wanted to create a space for others to share their stories too. In Season 2, I will be sharing fascinating personal experiences, some that unfold over long periods of time, and stories bravely told in memoirs and autobiographies. I discuss with a range of professionals in the field who may help navigate the complex foster care system, or understand childhood trauma and effects of separation, or how to support parents who wish to foster or adopt across the state, national and international lines. By sharing a range of experiences, it may help increase connection and awareness around adoption and foster care in Australia, facilitate informed discussion and encourage more people to open their hearts, minds and homes to children in need. Hey everyone, in this episode I speak with Karen. Karen is a mother to two boys adopted from the Philippines and president of the Adoptive Kinship and Fostering Families Association of the ACT, known as ACFA. Karen believes it is important to find your community of people when it comes to adoption, fostering and kinship care. Karen was previously a member of the ACT Legislative Assembly and uses her experience to work towards a better system for all families that are involved. She is passionately learning about the impacts of early life trauma and the effects on neurobiology and she shares that information with the families uh, through ACFA and the Adoption Fostering Kinship Space. Karen also recently held a trust-based relational intervention workshop known as TBRI at ACFA and talks through various tools used to bring healing and well-being to children who come from hard places. TBRI is an attachment-based trauma-informed intervention designed by the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development and focuses on three principles, connecting, correcting and empowering. I love chatting with Karen on this one, so let's get into it. Hi Karen, thank you so much for joining us today. First of all, congratulations uh, on the good news with the adoption of your second child happening this month. What have you got planned to celebrate? Thanks, Nadia. Thanks for having me on. Uh, It's lovely to be here with you. We're all quite excited in our family that we're finally getting to finalise our second one's adoption. It's been a very long road. Um, So we'll be going to court and we'll have some friends and who have been involved with our adoption process over what is 15 years <laughs> come along and be part of it with us and then we're we're probably going to have a, a lunch at a Filipino restaurant to celebrate our little one's ad- adoption finalization so we go and celebrate uh, say yay part of the family here you are mm-hmm. so that that'll be great how old is he so he's just turned nine. So, yeah, he's, he's just turned nine and he's been with us for about 18 months now. So uh, he was seven when I brought him home and almost seven and a half and he was six when we were matched. So, yeah, been a long time, but uh, 
we're finally getting to that point where we can go done and dusted with having to deal with the department and having to answer multiple questions that seem to be the same questions just repeatedly asked and um, get that out of the way and just get on with being a family, which we've been doing, but it's nice to have that feeling of not having to continuously chase the department to get the adoption finalised and that we're not waiting on our local government, the federal government and an overseas government or more than an over one overseas government, depends on where you adopt from, for them to go through their steps to, to finalise and get to, to the point where you can say, that's it, don't need to deal with that anymore, can just focus on what we need to do for our boys. So, yeah, yeah, moving forwards. Ne next chapter, which is um, fantastic for all of you. Yeah, you said 15 years. Uh, so you and your husband, you know, you've got two beautiful boys, both from the Philippines. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the story behind that? 15 years is a long time and you probably just so, you know, you have so much experience and knowledge about this topic. What is the process, I guess, in a nutshell, with adopting children from overseas? So your story and then the process. I suppose our story started, in fact, more than 15 years ago um, before Brendan and I even got married. We knew that it was quite possible that I wouldn't be able to fall pregnant. So we'd had that conversation well before we got married, in fact, talking about what we would do and and what was comfortable for both of us and we never looked at going down the IVF route that wasn't the path for us and so we decided to do adoption we had friends who do, who'd adopted from the Philippines so that was a fairly early decision that that's where we would adopt from a lot of people go into international adoption not knowing which country they want to adopt from. But uh, for us, and because my husband is a committed Catholic, it was in, you know, it, it uh, suited our path to go down that, that route of adopting from the Philippines. Um, so we went to our first information session and seminar in the ACT. We went there in... Um, 2007 around about this time of year and um, went through all the processes and then took me a while or took us a while to get our paperwork in and so initially it took us a little while to, to get stuff done. I was pretty busy in those days because of my job back then because I was in the local assembly in the ACT so um so that kept me busy and it was like we made the decision that well I made the decision that I wanted to focus on forming a family and um, um I didn't feel I could do that within the assembly so I got out and and then eventually eventually we got our life story done which is uh, I mean I remember it was you had to do the, I think the questions were something along the lines of Please give us your life story. You can do it any way you like. However, we recommend that you answer these questions and it, you know, be no less than 
I think five pages are no longer than 10 pages. And it was like, okay. And then you answer all these deep and personal questions about your life and what that involves and, you know, your relationship with your parents and your siblings and how you were parent and what you think about that. And so that takes a significant amount of time and then you you have to get references and you put in the forms and, I mean, it's been a long time since I did it. Obviously, it's 15 years. But, you know, you have to think through a lot of the questions and how they'll be perceived by not just the people in the local adoption area but also because that life story is fundamental to providing a picture of how you will do as a as parents it then gets picked apart by the social worker you have to have a social workers report who goes through and go does interviews with you um, you have to do a psychologist assessment that's when you're going to the Philippines and you do the testing that they require. So it's it's quite invasive, but it's necessary. You know, I understand the reason why why they do that. They need to they need to know that you're prepared for going down the path of adopting a child who hasn't been born to you and um, knowing that what's involved with the trauma behind that, that there is a trauma for those children, that there's grief for those children, preparing yourself and how you'll deal with a number of the, the situations that come up with adopting children of um, a different race yourself. So, yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. it is a thorough and lengthy process. However, it is unique in terms of, you know, it's probably the only time where you do actually look and reflect on your life and answer those kind of questions. I don't think many people uh, would have been given the questions that you would have been given and actually had to think through, you know, what were my parents like? How, how was I grown up? How, what sort of parent do I want to become? So, yeah, I guess in that sense, um, it is a time for pause and reflection and, and maybe a bit of insight as well, as lengthy and as thorough as it is, it's it's sort of giving them a full picture, but it's also giving you a full picture or an idea of, oh, well, yeah, what sort of parent am I going to be like? That that's right. It would be it would be better for you know, it would probably be better for us as parents as well as our kids if we were actually mindful of that and thinking about that sort of thing before we did go into the process of, of having children. Um, but you, you can't force people to be mindful about their parenting style. Um, and most people go into parenting and just go, oh, I'm having a baby. Yep. Okay, that's it. It'll be fine and my children will never do X, Y and Z um, and they'll always, you know, do as I ask and we, we'll always, you know, have... You know, no screen time and none of this and none of that and, and they'll always say please and thank you and all, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and always play nicely. But it is what it is. So uh, you get to that point. And I'm still, uh, my older boy, he's been home coming up to 10 years 
and you know, every stage is different with with children and you're you're always learning and i mean for me i i think it's important to read and to do lots of listening and to do lots of stuff on neurobiology and neuroscience and how the brain works and so I, i'm a big fan of learning as much as i can to try to help me be a better parent with my my kids and i mean especially i mean i remember when we were going through the process the first time around and the social worker said to me oh well this is how we'll do the sessions and i'll i'll sit and i'll interview you'll have a, a meeting with with both of you together and we'll i'll ask questions and then i'll meet with with both of you separately and karen i'll need to spend more time with you because of your family history and it's like oh goody <laughs> wow well i mean and it yeah and, and I, it's like it wasn't a huge surprise but it's always it's a little bit confronting because i have a mother with mental health issues i did need to actually focus on that and think about how that would impact me in my parenting of our children and and i'm glad i did uh, i'm glad i did i'm still working on that i'm still i think it's a, a lifelong work for me i'm trying to be a better parent i mean not to say that my mother wasn't doing the best that she could she was but for me it's important for me to be able to model to my kids you know how to say sorry and how to how to treat people with respect but also have compassion for themselves as well as for others and i feel that you know a lot of the a lot of the reading that i've done and a lot of the podcasts that i listen to have made helped to make that relationship between myself and my children and my myself and my husband better I and mean, that's not to say that there aren't days in which you know <laughs> Uh, my oldest son has taken to saying that he wants to find another family, um, especially in the mornings when I'm trying to get him out the door and get him to school. But um, that that's pretty normal. You mentioned, you know, you chose the Philippines, one, because Brendan's um, quite religious in, to, in the Catholic Church and yourself. Was there any other reason why you chose an overseas adoption as opposed to adopting in Australia? As I said, the, there was the fact that um, we have friends who had adopted from the Philippines. Um, so we were familiar with that process. At the time that we went through our first application in the ACT, you could tick to apply for local as well as international, but it had to be one international country. And we did tick that box, but we were aware that the number of placements of local children was, it was so low and it's gone even lower since then. And it's up to your file has to be picked by by the, the biological parent or parents to go to um, 
for for their child to go to you. And we weren't looking at, like, they were just starting to look at the whole permanent care process back then. They only just were starting to talk about it. So it wasn't really an option for us and we weren't interested in going into the fostering process because we knew that we wanted to have a permanent family and we didn't want to have that uncertainty for our family. We wanted to be able to say, that's it, we've finalised and we're not um, we're not looking at having the possibility that the, that the child won't be available to be with us permanently. Yeah. Um, and permanent permanency wasn't a big thing back when we started the first time around. And then for the second time around, we had a child from the Philippines so already. So we wanted them to have a sibling who was also from the Philippines. Yeah, um, which is why sense. we went. Yeah, yeah, which is why we went to the Philippines the second time. Yeah, so um, I do remember standing in the lift when we were in the department, and the the admin person said, <laughs> "This was like we were just going starting the process of adopting a second time," and she said, "Oh, do you think you'll go a third time?" And I went, "If I get through this process for the second time, there's no way I'm going a third time." <laughs> it's like. Yeah, there is nothing that could, you know, and that was before I'd gone. We'd gone through all the highs and lows of what happened with the Philippines program, so which is a whole other story. Gosh, sounds yeah. like a bit of an ordeal, but um, but you know, you've come out the other end, and November is the month to celebrate. So yeah, really excited, yeah. you guys, yeah. family, and yeah, I can see the smile on your yeah. face when I mention that. So yeah, it's yeah. Thank you. Like a marathon, isn't it? It is a marathon, definitely not a sprint. No. So having been involved in politics, what has that meant for you in terms of advocacy in the adoption, fostering, kinship care space? Uh, Yes. Well, I suppose the thing is that it makes me not scared to actually talk to the politicians and speak to people in, in the departments and both my husband and I have been involved with politics for a very long time and we know a lot of the players. So I suppose I I see it as being a means to an end in terms of being able to go and have a frank conversation and say, you've got a problem here, this doesn't work, etc., etc. But... Um, whereas some people just see it as oh, it doesn't occur to people to actually go and speak to their local member of parliament or their local um, member of the assembly in the ACT and say, look, there's, there's problems here. Can you actually assist? You know, how much how much of a difference it makes? I'm still working it out. <laughs> so, mm. but, uh, yeah, and yeah, so just. Because I was interested in in the issue um, and personally involved, and having um, lots of friends in the the international adoption space, and lots of friends who are doing fostering, long term fostering, emergency fostering, emergency placements, I, there's a real need to actually go and be able to advocate for those people who are working in that that area um, as 
working is not the right word, but who are in that space and whose families come together, whether or not it's a you know a short-term thing and they intend for it to be a short-term thing or whether or not they go into it with the, with the plan to actually have a child come into their home and remain with them. So you... You were in the political space and then you decided to um, leave. But then during that time, you you became part of the fostering and kinship of the ACT and then later president of the association. Um, and you also joined the um, Philippine Adoption subgroup. Tell me about the support the Asian provides and how important was it to find your community of people? Well, I, I suppose I'd say you need to find your tribe. <laughs> You need to find your tribe of people because the majority of people out there won't understand what it's like to go through the adoption process and they won't understand uh, the implications of on your kids and what it means to actually have a, an international adoption, what that means for the kids and the sorts of questions and and. Also, the, the way that your kids might feel and the fact that they will grieve their, their first families. And in, in, my, in my second son's case, it's not just grieving his, his um, biological family. It's more for him at the moment because he was with a foster family, wonderful foster family in the Philippines. He grieves them as well. And that's more of a a present grief for him and it's perfectly understandable i mean if if i'd been living with somebody for five years and more than five years and then get uprooted to another country of course i'm gonna feel a bit out of sorts about that as well so some people might think that so they should just get on with their lives you know they're kids they're resilient they're kids well no they're not necessarily resilient not if you don't actually acknowledge that they have, that they're allowed to grieve the connections that they've made, the people who have been important in their life. Now, my, for my oldest son, he's he's going through the process at the moment of particularly grieving his first mother, and you know we're talking about how how to deal with that for him. Yeah, so he's going through that process of grieving his his birth mother and I mean we he's lucky he has well, lucky I, every time I say that I go no that's not the word I want to use hmm. he he has a lot more information about his about his birth mother than many internationally adopted kids have we've got photos of her we've got a letter from her to him and to us yeah, so we have lots of photos of her which he can go and have a look at. But that doesn't take away the fact that he's lost the person who he was not just with in utero, he was with for the first 14 months of his life. And without going into his story, yeah, you know, that's a huge loss to actually have that situation and... It's important to say to him that's normal and, you know, let's talk about how we can, you know, maybe write her a letter and 
see if we can get that letter to her through a third party, which may be possible. But if not, then at least he's putting that down because it is with the Philippines. It's um, there is no open adoption, um, so he's not allowed to contact her until he reaches adulthood. So that uh, that is hard. It's hard for for all of those kids. So I so going back to why it's important. To, that's why it's important to find your tribe of people, um, people who will understand that that you can talk to about that, talk through the the ways that your children are grieving. And so we, I mean, we have the. Um, our association has um, regular get-togethers for both parents and for the kids as well, different sorts of things. So uh, at the end of this month, we're going to have our annual general meeting as well as our Christmas event, and which is always great fun getting together with kids and parents being able to catch up and we do it out in a an area just out of Canberra, which has got lots of activities for the kids and it's mm. lots of fun. Um, and it, it normalises that. It normalises for those kids that they can come together and they're not the only ones who are adopted or they're not the only ones who are in foster care or permanent care or, you know, they're not the only ones who who are have a family, you know, they have a you know, they may have their birth family who they get to see, get to contact, you know, at contact visits, but they've also got this family who are growing them up, as mm -hmm. Dara says in her book, We Love You Hundreds and Thousands. She says, you know, it's, it's it. you know, the little girl says, it's simple, you know, I have my family who gave birth to me and I have my family who are growing me up. But because our kids don't necessarily get to see that, that mirrored all all the time they don't get to see that out in society they may feel like they're strange and they're not it's just their situation is different to other kids in you know in the class but you need to honor their story and honor their history and actually help them come to terms with what their story and their history is so that they can be the best people in their own skin, be their real true selves and feel comfortable in themselves. And that means all feelings are welcome, all emotions are welcome. Yeah, so that's, I guess, it's it's important to have these community groups because for those children, bringing those children together with other children with the same commonalities of being adopted or in foster care, it does reduce, I guess, that stigma or feelings of um, isolation or um, it probably allows them to communicate in different ways than they would with children who aren't adopted or aren't fostered. So, yeah, so it's important for you in terms of having that as a community for you and going through all the trials and tribulations of um, all the ch ch their children's stage developments and what they're going through, um, but also for them too, getting that that extra support. Yeah, that's right. And it, it's, it's not even necessarily that they're going to want to have a conversation about about adoption because they're kids but you know the fact that they can go to an event and just be a kid and go and play and my older son has got a friend who's also adopted from the philippines in canberra and he's got uh, he's got a, a few in canberra and he's got um a few in you know sydney area 
and you know we go to events we go to we go to camps and we go to events down in the ACT and he 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 gets to see his friends and just play with them and be a kid and he knows that he's not the only one who's like that and the same goes for my younger son and we went to our association had for for foster care week one of the things we did was we went to the we had a fundraising movie and he said oh can i sit next to x yeah and i said of course you can darling and then after that they've they've got you know my younger son's been invited to come over and do play Beyblades and he's all excited because he gets to play Beyblades with his new friend and and then during the school holidays his new friend said oh I'm having a Beyblade tournament and you know it's you know you can come over and it's like they had a Beyblade tournament and he got won this little little cup because he came third in the Beyblade tournament amongst all these other kids and it's like and that's great you know and some of them you know, some of them are, you know, uh, fostered or adopted and some of them are just friends, you know, through school and, and whatever. But it's just going and being a kid but also knowing that you're not a freak show, I suppose. Yeah, um, I guess it's like non, that non-verbal communication and just knowing that someone yeah. is adopted sort of makes you feel less alone. I only knew one person that was adopted that was a next door neighbor when I used to stay at my foster mum's place and when they told me it was it was like oh really are you oh and that was the only person that I knew but I kind of just latched on to her um we were the same age and yeah so I I understand it's it's not like we we ever spoke about adoption I didn't start chatting to her about anything couldn't verbalize anything but just knowing that that person was the same as me in the same kind of boat then it's you kind of just develop a liking to that person yeah it's good it's good having those community groups for for both adults and children so your community group it's called ACFA yes which stands for Adoptive Kinship and Fostering Families Association of the ACT and surrounding region which is why we call it ACFA because that's a big mouthful (laughs) and I was talking about it with my brother yesterday and he was like (laughs) he said it really he says it describes it all with ACFA you became you became president since the end of 2015 but you had been kind of a part of that committee for a few years prior to that and recently organised a like a, and ran a trust-based relational intervention workshop from the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development. Can you tell me about this workshop? Because I know we've been speaking about this for a few months now and I'd love to hear how it went. Yeah, um, so trust-based relational intervention or TVRI for short was started by the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development. So Dr. Karen Purvis and Dr. David Cross uh, from the Texas Christian University started this model and they wrote a book first called The Connected Child and um, the TBRI model, well, the name of the Trust-Based Relational Intervention came about, my understanding is, just after the book came out and 
It started from Dr Purvis. She ended up doing a lot of work with um, families with internationally adopted children. So both she and Dr Cross are psychologists, um, child psychologists, and, you know, and um, so they ended up doing that together and they had a camp called the Hope Connection, I think it was called, um, in which they they modelled this sort of thing. So it's really big in the United States and it's a model which is based on connected parenting. And for me, I we had a, a TBRI practitioner run it. Um, so he's based in the Newcastle area, but he came down and ran it for us because he's got um, one of our members is his sister and she's she's also a social worker. So she'd say, oh, would you be interested in having this run? And I'd been keen to have it run for a few years since I'd started looking into it and I'd read The Connected Child. And so it... It looks at how the how the implications of trauma on the brain, um, and especially on a child's developing brain. There's been a lot more books published on this by people like Dr. Bruce Perry and Bessel van der Kolk, and even Mona Della Hook talks about it in her in her book as well. Dr. Dan Siegel and Dr. Tina Payne Bryson, they also talk about about this stuff in their books so but um what what it talks about so the amygdala which is part of the reptilian brain is actually and is it's like the smoke alarm in the brain and if you've been through trauma so what happens is that the children who've been through trauma um their amygdala is larger and it can be up to four times larger than than a normal amygdala. So they're, they're much more likely to overreact and which means that you need to actually reframe the way that you actually parent your child um, to take into account their trauma. And it, it has real implications for them in the classroom setting and in their relationships with other kids and and establishing re-establishing that connection so that they have that sense of felt safety within um in their reptilian brain because the reptilian brain can't tell time um and that's what dr Bruce, Bruce has done a lot of research on so and it, it's come about, you know, there's been stuff about it to do with PTSD where they've they've established a well, you know, it doesn't it doesn't actually the reptilian brain can't tell time. So for example, if you have PTSD and you're a war veteran and you hear fireworks going off or a a bike backfiring, your downstairs brain just goes into fight or flight and that so you've got no control over what your reactions are to that situation because the reptilian brain has taken over and the frontal cortex just loses all. There's a loss of integration. That's my understanding of it anyway. So for me, um, 
I felt that it was important. Um, I've been to, I've done a, a number of, I've done the TBRI course a few times online, but I wanted to have it available for our members so that we could start talking about it um, and understanding the impacts for our kids on what whether they're coming from the foster care community, whether they're coming from kinship care, or if they're coming from the if they've adopted internationally or adopted locally, mm-hmm. there is you need to be able to connect with them to actually give them that felt safety, empower them to to address their physical needs. Um, so you know, making sure that they're hydrated and. That they that they're properly getting proper nutrition, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it looks at all of that and all of the implications of that. I think this trust-based relational workshop is just super interesting, and yeah, I, I'm sure you've just got um, a lot more to say about that as well. Is there anything else you want to add about that workshop? Well, it was because we had a we had a mixed group of people at the workshop, so. For some people, they'd already done, you know, similar training through uh, this, the Circle of Security workshop, which is a lot of families in the foster care community in, in um, Australia have done Circle of Security, which is also based on um, that brain-based science and looking at um, how to actually provide that Circle of Security for, for children so that they learn to know that their needs are met and, you know, that when they cry that they, you know, their needs are met and um, um, they have that connection. There's a number of diagrams which I can point you to and I might I might actually send you one from yeah. the TBRI. Which, yeah, that's it, And it's got a video which, which shows how baby cries, the caregiver comes, you know, comforts, you know, the, the child learns that they have a voice and that's where you have. So, and this leads to, yeah, this is coming out of um, Bowlesby, Bowlby's attachment theory stuff as well. So um, when the child learns that they have a voice, they become, they're securely attached. As a, as a caregiver, I think the, the estimate is that even the best caregiver in the world will only be attuned to their child for about 30% of the time. But because you're repeating the actions so many times, the child needs to be fed, so you feed the child. The child needs to, you know, be changed, you know, so you change the child. The child needs to be soothed and, you know, provided a safe place to sleep and kept safe and you provide those things and you do that thousands upon thousands of times for an infant. So, you know, the child cries, you come to the child, they learn that they have the voice child cries and nobody comes or somebody comes and they yell at them or, you know, or they they jeer at them or, you know, they laugh at them or they they abuse them physically or in whatever way, then they don't trust their voice. And the whole thing about attachment, and I think you might have had some discussion about the the theory, attachment theories in one of your podcasts with, um, I, I can't remember, but um, so that there's there's different types of there's different types of of there's securely attached and then there's 
insecure attachment and but attachment is something that all children are seeking out and how they get that back impacts on how they grow up so so for me the whole thing with the with tbri was it's a start in terms of explaining to myself and i'm continuously trying to learn more about this but also to our other families I think that's just really interesting for people to to know about what happens on a, a physiological level, psychological level. Yeah, it just gives people a bit more of an understanding of how the brain works post-trauma, um, post-prolonged trauma too. So I'm assuming that, you know, over yep. the last 15 years you know a lot more now than you did back then and I, I hope that things have improved over the last 15 years since you first started um, on this pathway, you know, not only just yourself just continually learning and seeking out information, but ha having that information just there and those services being provided to people now who are maybe ent just entering into the foster care or adoptive space. So um, do you think that it has changed and, and for the better or what do you think there needs to be improvements? I wish I could say it had improved. The stats prove otherwise, don't they? They do. And, I um, mean, there's, you know, that, that whole thing about child learning that they have a voice is so integral in this. In the, the I really feel like, I mean, in spite of the fact that government departments say, oh, well, you know, they, they're putting the child at the centre and, it, you know, you know, putting the the needs of the child first. I often think that, you know, it's, it doesn't work out that way, that children are treated as though they're an attachment for they're owned by their family, whether it be birth family or, or, or otherwise, and that it's because... You know, the adults are the ones who have the voice. The voices of the children are being ignored. And there's, if government departments want to keep children with their biological families, they need to actually show how they're actually supporting those families. Not just show, but actually do. And that means providing long-term support to to break the intergenerational trauma that's occurred. I mean, if you've been brought up and you've been bounced around the foster care system and then you end up having a child yourself, it's more than likely that you'll have the child taken off you at some point or that you won't know how to help your child be the best person that they can be and help yourself be the best person that you can be the whole terminology of best interests of the child I think is used by government departments a lot of the time to justify their predetermined end result and I don't think that they are necessarily putting the best interests of the child at the front of their, their minds. So, What is that predetermined end result? Just, just it resulting in um, foster care and not, not so many permanent cares or adoptions or... Um, reducing 
Yeah, not not as many um, access to services. I think it depends on where you are in the country, but because because of the uh, and this comes back to politics of the situation as well. So uh, ultimately, the you know de- government departments and um, uh, ministers respond to negative you know, articles in the media about children being in out-of-home care, they don't necessarily look at the situation of um, the stability of that care, the permanency of that care, and they treat it as as though it's a black and white situation of, you know, the child either is in out-of-home care or they're with biological family and... Um, that it, it can't be anything in between. And, you know, they have this attitude that children, you know, are worse off if they're, if they're not with their biological family a lot of the time. So they keep returning them to family until it gets to, to a crisis situation. But when they return them to biological family, what supports are they actually giving to that biological family? There has always been like such a vigorous public discussion about adoption and out-of-home care in Australia, however minimal platforms. From your experience, what do you think would be some key recommendations that could be submitted to government? Well, I suppose the thing that I would like to see is if um, government departments want to have less children in the out-of-home care setting, then um, they really need to start working on strengthening the original family what are they doing to break the cycle that is leading to children being removed what are they doing to identify at-risk families and provide them with the support that they need and also when are they going to give these children a voice i mean a real voice these kids are not possessions of anybody they're not possessions of family Um, there's a lot of lip service being paid to the best interests of the child. But at the end of the day, I think this claim is used to come to a predetermined outcome. And it has and continues to cause trauma, much of which is intergenerational. I'd like to see all governments address the issue of how to break the cycle of intergenerational trauma. Thank you for listening. Join us next time on My Unknown Truth.